0: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. On today's show, The Hidden History of Measurement, with James Vinson and his new book, Beyond Measure. James Vinson is a journalist and writer from London who has worked and written for numerous publications including the London Review of Books, the Financial Times, Independent, Wired, New Statesman and others and is currently a senior reporter for The Verge and today we're going to be talking about James's first book which is Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement. James, welcome to Little Atoms.
1: Neil, thank you so much for having me today.
0: Tell us then how you... I mean, we're obviously all aware of measurement throughout our lives. It's unavoidable. But when did you realise that there was an interesting story behind it all?
1: So I think it was probably, I'd had a lingering background interest in this for a while, um, and I'd read a few books in it. The thing that sort of triggered me wanting to write this book and to become more involved in the topic was um, in 2018, I was um, sent as a journalist to cover the redefinition of the kilogramme which was, you know, I, I work as a science journalist, and this was a science story. And they, uh, I was sent to Paris to cover the redefinition. And this was, you know, a sort of a revelation for me. I didn't really realize that the kilogram could be redefined. And I went to Paris to see the sort of headquarters of the Bureau International de Poids de Mesures, which is the... French-based uh, scientific body that is sort of charged with maintaining the values of the metric system. It's been around for centuries now, since the French Revolution. Um, I went over there to cover the story, and I just started talking to the scientists and the diplomats who were involved in this work of redefinition. And that really opened my eyes to the history of these units. I'd never really thought about why is a kilogram a kilogram before. Who gets to decide how much a kilogram is, and how come everyone can agree on it? And I sort of realised what a rich history it had, but also what an incredible achievement it is. You know, the fact that we have essentially a single common language of measurement is really, to my mind, a sort of fantastic achievement of, <laughs> of human civilization, that we all speak this same language, um, obviously in England and uh, in, in, in the U.S., we choose to have our own dialects with Imperial and US customary units. But you know, I think the metric system itself is a phenomenal achievement.
0: We're gonna talk about how the metric system came about a bit later on, but just thinking about that reclassification of the kilogram that you mentioned, they, you know, to cut a long story short, they find out that it's slightly out, like a minuscule amount out. So The way that it's calculated is redone. But what does that actually mean in the real world? Because, you know, as far as I'm concerned, a kilogram is the thing that goes
1: with my scales that measures flour or whatever. Well, this was the sort of what I loved. uh, Another element of the story that I loved was the fact that the redefinition, if it was to be achieved in the most perfect sense, would change absolutely nothing. (laughs) Which is, you know, exactly the sort of paradoxical uh, aspect of scientific work I'm really drawn to. Because quite rightly, as you point out, what the kilogram means to you on your kitchen scales, you want it to not change at all. And that's what the scientists were after as well. I don't want to overlap what we might talk about later, but the broad sketches of it are that, you know, for centuries, all the units we know now used to be based on physical artefacts. So there was a metre bar, there was a yard bar as well there was a kilogram and there was an ounce that was kept by countries, by states, and they would use that to refer, you know, to compare all their units to and make sure that they were all consistent. The problem with this is that physical standards, like anything physical in the world, is prone to change over time. Um, And the kilogram was losing weight, essentially. But because it was the definition of the kilogram, it meant it couldn't lose weight. It meant the rest of the world was getting slightly heavier instead which was just a bizarre set of circumstances to be in. So the scientists redefined it using universal kind of constants of nature, which is something they've done now with every unit of the metric system or the System international to give it its, its proper title. And they're based now not on physical artifacts, but on sort of calculations we've derived from you know, the very framework of reality, from the guts of the universe, things like the speed of light. Which we think is we, as far as we know, is unchanging everywhere in the universe, or you know the spin of atoms, which is as constant as we can get it's this sort of information that is coded deep into the heart of you know the operating system of reality, and so they base the definitions on the the definitions of the kilogram and other units on these uh, these bits of information instead, and the idea from that is. It's useful from a very high-tech science point of view because it allows greater degrees of precision when doing very, very complex experiments with quantum physics. But also, it's supposed to make these units unchanging for the rest of time. So it means that even if these physical standards are destroyed, even if we lose the equipment we now use to define the kilogram, as long as we know the recipe, as it were, as long as we know the calculations that were involved, Then they will make sure that this work sort of endures. And that for me was utterly fascinating as well. The idea that these objects, which have quite an arbitrary history a lot of the time, you know, they're essentially pulled out of our imagination, are now something that we have tied to what we think is the most enduring aspects of reality. So it's it's one of these scientific projects which simultaneously mean everything and nothing. You know, it's this huge undertaking, but at the same time, if it comes off successfully. No one will ever notice anything has changed.
0: You start off the book looking at ways in which when humans first started using measurement as a tool on, on a large scale, it was both a, a sort of cognitive leap for human beings, but also was the start of social control. And I want to talk about this, but to get us into that, tell us about a trip you did to um, Cairo, where you go and see, which for some reason I find incredibly funny name of the Nylometer.
1: The Nylometer. Oh, it's great, isn't it? I love the Nylometers. So... Yeah, this was probably my favorite research trip I did for the book. Um, unfortunately, I had a lot more planned, but I wrote most of it during, uh, I mean, you yeah, know, over the ongoing pandemic, essentially, and lockdowns meant I had to cancel a lot of trips. But I went to Egypt to see this sort of archaeological artifact of which there used to be hundreds, perhaps thousands, we think. And now there's, you know, a few dozen scattered around Egypt. And yes, this is the Nilometer, which you're right, is a completely ludicrous name on the face of it, because it describes exactly what it does. It's a way of measuring the depth of the River Nile. Uh, and so this was something that was used by the ancient Egyptian priesthood, which during the ancient e- Egyptian regimes was sort of a priesthood, but it was also a bureaucracy as well, because it was the priests who sort of looked after the business of the state, basically. And they, you know, advised the pharaoh on things like taxes and, uh, you know, uh, making sure the granaries were stocked. And the nilometer played a big part of this. So River Nile floods on a very regular basis. And it's this flooding which helped the ancient Egyptian state um, flourish because it you know, gives you this huge fertile plain. But predicting what those floods are going to be like every year. Uh, has a big effect on the functioning of the state because if you have a, a great flood and you know there's going to be a bountiful harvest fantastic you can plan for happy times but if you know there's going to be a, a rather low flood and there's not going to be as much flood water you know irrigating the plains then you might have to look out for a famine and you need to account for that the nilometer was essentially the way that the ancient egyptians made the predictions of what next year's harvest would be and they are you know, as as straightforward as the name sounds, they're just rulers, basically. They're huge, huge rulers that were either built as sort of freestanding stone columns or they were carved into the riverbank and they measured the depth of the flood in cubits. So the ancient Egyptian priests would look at this and they'd see how big the flood was. And then they would know from that what the sort of grain and the food supplies were going to be like for the coming year. And from that, all sorts of questions about how the state would divvy up its resources would be answered. The extra sort of fascinating thing I've, I love about the nilometers is because the function of the Nile was seen as being um, an expression of the will of the gods. You know, it's whether they were happy or not would determine whether or not you got a good harvest. The nilometer is essentially a ruler that measures the happiness of the gods, which I just think is incredible. And they were built into, a lot of the time, temple complexes, because obviously that's where the priests would be. So the the priests would look at them and go, oh, the gods aren't that happy this year. We've only got 14 cubits worth of flood water," (laughs) which I just love as a concept, uh, a ruler to measure the gods. But this shows the importance of measurement to the state. Because measurement is a tool that lets you predict the future, essentially. It's something that we see in ancient uh, Babylonian society as well, where there was lots of measuring that went on with sort of astrological predictions, which was all to do with measuring the movement and the position of the stars. And from those calculations, again, you'd have a priest class that made sort of predictions about the future. So you have measurement is very important to the state on a practical level in that unless you have consistent units of measurement, You don't get trade and you don't get architecture and you can't send out plans from your temple from one city to another in order to make sure it's built to your specifications. But it also has this more symbolic level of control in that, yeah, it's about prediction and it's about uh, extending power across different domains.
0: So obviously, before we get any form of widespread, consistent measures, both imperial and, and that's how the metric system as well, which I said we're going to talk about in a bit, comes out of, there's lots more localised rural measurement systems. And I want you to tell us about some of those measurement systems that are based on things like the human body or you know a number of seeds and and also there's some really interesting ones that are much more sort of like elastic that are based much more on the sort of utility of a piece of ground rather than its actual size
1: yeah so the first measurements in pretty much every civilization society that we have a record of tends to be derived either from the human body or from nature. Um, And if you think about why and how we use measurements, you know, this makes perfect sense, because what we want from a unit of measurement is we want something that is sort of consistent most of the time, we want something that is repeatable. So if you're looking to create units of measurement, then the human body is a fantastic template for that, you know, so pretty much every culture we know of has a unit based on the size of your foot, for example. There's a great uh, historian of science um, who's also written about measurement as well called Robert Kreese. And he says, you know, there's three key characteristics that you need for units of measurement. They need to be accessible. They need to be consistent, more or less. And they need to be appropriate for the job that they're doing. And units derived from the human body fit all of those criteria because they're always at hand they're about the right size for what you're doing. You know, if you're building a building, then having, <laughs> measuring it out in u- bodies, uh, units based on the body makes sense. And everyone has them. So these are where the first units come from. And uh, lots of different cultures have, uh, yeah, lots of units taken from body parts. So the Aztecs have units equivalent to the cubit, which is the elbow to the tip of the finger, uh, the fathom, which is the outstretched arms. But then they also have uh, units from the forearm, the omittal, from the tip of the hand to the armpit, the kiactal, and from the tip of the fingers to the shoulder, the achali. And those pronunciations, I'm sorry, I'm not a, a scholar of ancient um Aztec language. So you have all these units based on uh on, on the body, but then they're also based often on the work that we do as well. So a lot of early units are based on the amount of work that can be done in a day. So an acre for example, is, you know, a a unit that we're all sort of familiar with. But the original definition for an acre uh, was the amount of land that could be ploughed in a day by a a team of oxen. Um, And this is obviously a unit that is not going to be the same uh, all the time because it will depend upon the land. And I think this is a really fascinating thing about early systems of measurement, early units of measurement is, they're not always as consistent as you'd like them to be because you don't have a societal way of making sure these units are promulgated and shared and standardized. They often sort of bend and flex. But what I found out was that this quality has its own utility as well. So there's an old Irish unit called the collop, which was the amount of land you would need to graze a single cow, um, which sounds sort of quite arbitrary but actually encodes a lot of information in it. So a collop would be a unit that gets bigger and gets smaller because lush, energy-dense pasture, for example, would be measured in smaller collops than the same geographical area of barren hillside because that lush, energy-dense pasture will feed a cow much better. So when you describe your land in collops, then you really know something about that land cuz you know you might have land that is 4000 acres wide but it's only actually uh, it's only healthy enough to graze four or five cows so these old units as i say they sort of shrink and expand but by doing so they convey information that newer units of measurement don't
0: so as the scientific revolution kicks off obviously Natural philosophers, as they were, there, need much more systematic ways of cataloging things and measuring things. and mm-hmm. one of the great stories in the book is is about around the the invention of the thermometer, and there's this incredible vexed question, which is that it's obvious how you measure something tangible, like a distance, or the weight of some grain. but how do you make a system to measure something? that's intangible like temperature.
1: Yeah, I, I love the history of the thermometer because to my mind, it's sort of one of the first elements of measurement that tries to tackle something incredibly subjective. You know, our experience of heat and temperature is, you know, so personal to the individual. Everyone knows this. You can be, you know, sharing uh, a house with a partner, for example, and what is, uh, you know, 68 degrees might be balmy to you could be intolerable to them and vice versa. So the idea of creating a consistent system of measurement for temperature really had to rely upon a lot of experimentation and a lot of sort of scientific knowledge as well. And it really ended up changing what our conception of heat and cold was. So hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, with the ancient Greeks, they knew that hot and cold were these incredibly important concepts that they obviously determined a lot of what happened in life and were incredibly important for you know the development of organic life and all these other sorts of things but they they thought that well there's no real way to know what temperature is they kind of considered that there might be degrees of temperature but they thought that probably there were probably about four degrees of temperature <laughs> so very cold quite cold a bit warm and very hot <laughs> that was that was all that they thought was really necessary and As this goes on, uh, we start developing what are called thermoscopes, which are like very early thermometers. So these are sort of tubes with a little bit of liquid in the bottom of them. And what that liquid is changes over the years. But as that liquid is exposed to different temperatures, it uh, shrinks and expands. And that pushes up a column of air within the thermometer. So it's the same basic concept as a thermometer we know today, but it's just a bit more rough and ready. And it doesn't quite have this sort of gradation, this temperature scale at the side. So these are these early thermoscopes developed by people like like Galileo, in fact, and they start playing around with them. But then there comes this really difficult question of, so I've got a thermoscope and you've got a thermoscope, and how do we know that they are measuring the same thing because they don't have the same scale on them? All we've done is sort of put some markings on the side of it, so, how do I know that your twenty two degrees is the same as my twenty two degrees and this is the big challenge for. Scientists during the sort of 17th and 18th centuries. And what they end up doing is they end up looking for stable thermometric phenomena. So they look for things, events, objects that occur at the same temperature each time. And they want to use these in order to put into context these thermometric scales. And it's like what I was saying earlier about, you know, we look for consistent units in the body and then we turn that into. Uh, units of measurement like the foot and the fathom what they're looking for is some element of consistency in the universe that they can then use as a basis for measurement and they start looking at all sorts of weird phenomena newton gets involved in this as well and he suggests one of the sort of benchmarks for uh, thermometers should be human blood because he thinks it's the same temperature all the time and it it roughly is he's on he was on to something pretty good there But it's pretty difficult to measure human blood whenever you need, you know, to test the reliability of your thermometer. And there's lots of experiments done. They look at the melting point of butter and they look at the temperature of the catacombs in France. And one of my favorite scales has um, one of the sort of uh, markers on it is the heat at which you can stand to keep your hand in a bath. (laughs) In fact, they further subdivide it. They subdivide that between the heat. You can stand by putting your hand in a bath static and then stand putting your hand in a bath, moving around, because obviously those are two different temperatures. And eventually they land on the boiling point and the freezing point of water because they realize that these two phenomena seem to happen at the same temperature each time. And eventually it's um, Anders Celsius, a Swedish astronomer, who comes up with his famous um, you know, Celsius temperature scale, which works well, now called the Celsius temperature scale, was briefly the centigrade temperature scale as well at which water freezes at zero degrees C and boils at 100 degrees C. And I I went to visit um, Uppsala to see the original thermometer, the first ever thermometer made by Anders Celsius that sort of defined this scale. And what was fascinating about it was when he made this thermometer, he actually wrote the scale backwards. So he put the boiling point of water at zero degrees C, and he put the freezing point of water at 100 degrees C. And it wasn't until years later that someone flipped those around and we get now the now familiar 100 and zero degrees C. But I think that shows how arbitrary a lot of this, uh, the world of measurement is, is that we're looking for these consistent points in reality, in the universe, in order to sort of compare the rest of reality with. But essentially, the points we choose, we can choose anything. And the fact that Celsius's first ever temperature scale was, to our eyes, upside down, Uh, and seems nonsensical just sort of proves that point.
0: it's little atoms i'm neil denny today i'm talking to james vincent and we're talking about his book beyond measure the hidden history of measurement and james i couldn't help but notice that when you give a, a hypothetical example of an apartment temperature in the first half you <laughs> used fahrenheit <laughs> yes. um and that um brings us nicely on to as i said i want to talk about this centuries long literally right up to the present day thanks to boris johnson yeah. battle between the systems of a uh, imperial measurements. And we will use that as a short term because there's various different versions of that and the metric system. So tell us, first of all, why the metric system came about in the first place.
1: So the metric system was invented during the French Revolution. And France at this time was really suffering from a plethora of measures. It had far too many. This was partly because it didn't have a sort of centralised authority that was looking after all these systems. And also because it had devolved a lot of the power about who got to define the units of measurement to the local nobility, So they would sort of help set and define what the units of measurement were. And this meant that you could walk from one town to another in France and the pint would be measured by a different, it would be, it would be a different thing. It would be, you know, 500 millilitres instead of 468 millilitres or whatever, whatever that difference was. And There was one calculation done by a sort of visiting English agriculturalist that France probably had about two and a half thousand different units named individual units. But between those units, there were about 250,000 variations. So this was obviously a terrible state of affairs for the country to be in because it meant that you didn't have an economy that functioned as a whole. And it meant that there was a lot of cheating as well. A lot of the peasantry were sort of annoyed that they would be exploited by their Um, manorial lords who would do things like use bigger bushels to collect taxes in, bigger bushels of grains to collect taxes from the peasants than the peasants would themselves use while trading. So this led to a huge political demand for a consistent system of units and uh, of, of weights and measures. So when the French Revolution came, this was one of the things that the revolutionaries wanted to deliver. They wanted to give the people a reliable system of measurement. But it was also a really political project for the revolutionaries and for the scientists involved with it. So the old system of units was sort of based on these arbitrary definitions. So one of the famous or one of the, one of the better known systems of length was the pied du roi, which was literally the foot of the king, which was a unit that dated all the way back to Charlemagne. But as the name suggests, was at one time supposed to be defined as the length of the king's foot. So this was obviously, you know, for the French revolutionaries, and these fine republicans, this really couldn't be countenanced at all. So they wanted to replace this old system of units and with it the old political ideals that sustained its authority with a rational, scientific system based on the cutting-edge Enlightenment science that France was, you know, so well known for. It really was the capital of Paris was the capital of science in this time. We had all the best scientists. So they came up with what we now call the metric system. The base unit of the metric system was the meter, which was defined as one 10 millionth of the distance from the North Pole to the equator. And then all the other systems, uh, all the other units, sorry, uh, were based and interconnected with this one unit. So you had the kilogram, for example. Uh, So the kilogram was originally defined as a cubic decimeter of water. So you would take a meter. And then you would make a sort of a decimeter, which is a tenth of a meter cubed from that, and then fill that with water. And then the weight of that water would be a kilogram. So all these units were supposed to be interconnected and based on scientific, this you know, rational scientific knowledge. And this was something that the revolutionaries were doing along with other things, other systems that they wanted to change. So They invented a new calendar, for example, the Republican calendar, which was supposed to get rid of the influence of religion on France. By getting rid of the old sort of um, calendar which had lots of festivals dedicated to saints and lots of you know religious festivals and it replaced them with republican festivals as well and they even they they went so far as to decimalize time Um, so they changed the 24-hour clock into a 10-hour clock in which there are 10 hours in a day each hour has 100 minutes and each minute has 100 seconds Um, And this actually meant that they had to change the length of the second itself. And the the decimal second is 0.86 fourths of the current second that we know now. But this just sort of shows how fanatical, I think it's fair to say, (laughs) you know, the French Revolution, pretty fanatical, how fanatical they were about changing the systems by which we understand the world around us. And this included the metric system. Um, And so it was designed to be a system that would help citizens calculating their own self-interest. That was one of the phrases that was used to describe it. And it was supposed to sort of free them from the old politics. But because of this, this is sort of the origins of the anti-metric sentiment we get in the US and the UK. And I know this is me returning to your question at a very, very long way around, but (laughs) that's the nature of measurement, I'm afraid. Um, Because of this, the metric system, it gets sort of associated with the worst um, excesses of the French Revolution and opponents in the US and the UK, they see the metric system as godless, essentially. They see it as connected to the atheistic uh, overtures of the French Revolution, and they see it as unnatural, as this real sort of imposition by scientists on what should be the natural workings of the world.
0: Well, talking about fanatical, there's one point <laughs> in the book where you, um, you go out into Essex and basically commit some domestic terrorism. <laughs>
1: I think that's putting it a little harshly, but I, the, the contours of it are right, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, that's my time with uh, the active resistance to metrication. <laughs> I mean, domestic terrorism, I, I think I'd call it a little bit of light vandalism, Neil. I think that's uh, a little bit more accurate. I don't want to implicate myself in anything too horrible. I was really interested in why people get so riled up about the metric system. I mean, it's an oddity, but I think it's something that speaks to the importance of measurement, the overlooked importance of measurement in, in, in everyday life. So this group, Active Resistance to Metrication, is essentially a bunch of um, uh, UKIP-aligned pensioners, shall we say, who think that the UK is losing its traditional heritage, its traditional culture, and this includes its traditional weights and measures. And the way that they choose to sort of express this discontent is they run around the country and they take down or they amend signposts that have been put up in metric rather than imperial units. And I, I want to say, actually, that sort of legally they're in the right here, which sounds crazy, but it's sort of true. The vandalism isn't, isn't legally um, prescribed, but the fact that these signposts are going up in metric is not technically correct. The UK obviously has a weird hodgepodge of uh, different units. But for road signs, we are supposed to use imperial. We can use both, and there are times where you can use uh, metric only. But for most of the time, it's either it's either both or it's imperial, especially for short distances. So when you get a signpost that says you know two hundred yards to the historic windmill or whatever it may be, that's what it should be. And they don't like this. Would well, not sorry. They don't like it when it's in metric. Is what they don't like. So yeah, I went on this raid with um, one of their number, a guy named Tony Bennett, who was a former. Uh, UKIP legal counsel and he sort of we we we, we amended some signposts basically in the lovely village of Thaxted. but he really explained to me what it is that gets people riled up about this stuff Um, and he's he's a bit of um he's obviously an extreme case because he's you know not many people get so riled up that they'll go out and uh paint a signpost that takes a little bit of that takes a little bit of pushing but for him it was really tied towards um, his Christian beliefs, which it completely took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting this at all. Um, so he's a sort of he's an evangelical Christian, and he believes that it's God's intention that we live in different nation states, and that God wants a diversity of nations across the world, and he doesn't want at all to be part of the same political superstructure. So obviously, he sees things like the EU as a threat to that sort of um, divinely defined uh, uh, you know socio-political setup and part of that is weights and measures he thinks that if we're all assimilated into the same system it becomes a threat to our freedoms essentially Um, and so he wants to maintain the UK's weights and measures in order to sort of maintain our independence from the rest of the world and now this seems sort of quite you know it seems quite frivolous when you tie it to that but actually and this was another thing that surprised me actually the history of anti-metric sentiment has a really strong strain of sort of, I don't know what to call it, religious conspiracy theory, I think is the best way to do it. And there was this belief that sort of originated in the 19th century, that essentially, the inch had been divinely bestowed upon humanity by God. Uh, (laughs) There are these Astronomers who were, you know, and scientists who were otherwise quite—they were respected members of the scientific community. These were not necessarily cranks by any means. Who uh, started this pseudo science called pyramidology, which was based on the idea that the measurements of the Great Pyramid of Giza encoded certain scientific truths about the world, and one of those truths they thought was the definition of a unit they called the sacred cubit. And this was supposed to be a unit of measurement that was used to plan out the pyramids, as well as all sorts of other holy archaeological relics, uh, like the Ark of the Covenant and things like that. And they thought the inch was defined, derived from the cubit. It was one twenty-fifth of the cubit. Therefore, the imperial system and the units derived from it were not just good sense. They were not just what we were used to. They were actually... You know, the will of God. (laughs) And so they thought to keep, you know, to keep the metric system at bay was essential in this sort of religious fight for the soul of the nation. And although we've lost some of that zealotry today, I still think that the battle over imperial measures shows, you know, why these things mean so much to us. And if you look, for example, where the imperial units have been kept in the UK. They are in domains of life which are very emotive. They are pints of beer at the pub. They're pints of milk for sustenance. They are how we weigh ourselves. They're how we measure our height. They're how we sort of locate ourselves in our environment. We travel for miles. We go yards and feet. So I think that shows to me that there's this sort of, you know, emotional connection with these units of measurement that means that when people suggest changing them, I understand why people get annoyed about that. I don't necessarily agree with them, but I think I understand a little.
0: So I've been talking to James Vincent. We've been talking about his book, Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement, which is and the UK from Faber. There's absolutely loads of amazing stuff in this book that we didn't get anywhere near talking about. James, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. No problem,
1: Neil. Thank you for having
0: me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.